0: This morning, and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter six, in the last part of the Gospel. Mark chapter six. We're, we're going to be looking at verse fifty-three to fifty-six. And as you turn there, let uh, let me read that pa- passage of Scripture, verse number fifty-three of Mark chapter six. This is when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that... They might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as again we approach uh, the Holy Word of God, we thank you, Lord, again for giving us the opportunity to have it in our hands, to be able to hear it, to be able to have the time to mull over it and think about it. And I pray, Lord, this morning as we see the scripture and the implications of it, that, Lord, we would take it to heart and we would put it into practice for ourselves. We would be a lot like these people here in Gennesaret. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to do that for the glory of your great name and the advancement of the gospel. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So the, the last time we were in the scripture, let me just bring you up the speed, uh, We were exposed to a deeper knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ. We learned that Jesus protects his sheep when they don't even know they're in danger, that Jesus prays for his sheep even while they are in the storm, that Jesus sees his sheep in the midst of their struggle And then, of course, Jesus comes to his sheep in the midst of their struggle to give them a glimpse of the glory of God so that they can have a deeper understanding of his unique person. And even when Jesus, in verse number 48 of chapter 6, intends to pass by them to show his glory to them, They do not receive it because they're not able to do so. So, Jesus from last week moved through the storm and the darkness. The wind was howling, the waves were swelling high and violently, but none of those things had an effect on him. He was not tossed about, he was not soaked by the waves. Jesus, the Bible says, literally walked on the top of the water, that Jesus walked on the lake as if it was solid ground. His power over the wind and waves was evident that their inability to disturb him or stop him showed who he was. So it came, became evident in this incident that the disciples were not ready to receive this manifestation of Jesus' person, that the darkness of the night, the danger of the storm, the disillusionment with, which exhaustion often brings caused the disciples to think that they were seeing a phantom figure which raised their fears and their suspicions And instead of thinking that they were safe, they were thinking they were doomed. And if you notice in verse number 49 of chapter 6, it says, But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that he was a ghost and cried out. And they all saw him and were terrified. So at that particular point, they were not necessarily comforted by what they saw, but they were actually terrified what they saw. And it was right there. At that very point of disillusionment and terror that Jesus speaks to them. And what does he speak to them in verse 50? But immediately it says he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. So Jesus speaks to them in a strong, calming voice when his disciples didn't get what he was doing. In, it's Jesus' voice they heard. It was the voice of the good shepherd that calms the fears of his sheep. And what does he say to them? Listen, take courage. It is I. It is I, not a ghost. It is I, your own Lord and Master, whose voice you know so well. So stop what you are doing. Stop being afraid. Stop being terrified. Stop being superstitious. I'm here now. And so Jesus really takes the name of God as the Old Testament shows us of God's self disclosure to Moses when Moses says, Who should send me? And, and God said to him, Tell them I am, send you. And so Jesus, really, the deed of Jesus bleeds through this encounter. The one who calmed the storm is now in the storm with the disciples. In fact, in verse number 51, it says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. So when Jesus came to them and got into the boat, the storm became completely calm. The wind stopped at the will of Jesus, and Jesus did not have have to be hoisted up into the boat In one action he went up to them into the boat. So we, I mentioned last time that Mark was intending really to record the inner effect of that particular miracle upon the disciples. Because, uh, well, he wanted to bring out really fully what was lacking in the hearts of the disciples. And that's what many times what the Lord wants to do with us too. The meaning of. Uh, of what was going on in their heart is recorded in verse number 52 of chapter 6 where it says that for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves but their heart was hardened and that's where I kind of left you last time they uh, the trouble was right in their heart right in the center of their emotional and spiritual life that influences their will and decision They had a hard heart. Uh, It was not, though, a heart of unbelief. It was a heart that was really unresponding to what they saw in Christ. It was a heart of very, very little faith. So the disciples really, at this point, should have known far more than they did. But they had a dullness of mind and heart. And if you notice in verse 52 again, they they were kind of stuck on the feeding of the 5,000. It says, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. So they had not grasped the significance of that miracle, which really was they had not learned the miracle of who Jesus actually was and what he was trying to show them about himself. Instead of trusting in Jesus, they were terrified. They were slow to understand. So with that, saying that, we have some hope, don't we? Because right? we're, we're not always too quick to understand either, especially spiritual things. Uh, we're, we're often slow and distracted to figure out what was going on or even to notice what's happening. I mean, we have to read the Scripture over and over and over again to get what the Scripture is actually saying. So what they lacked in their heart was the understanding that expects Jesus to act like the Son of God all the time. They were kind of like ending with this result. They were always amazed. Uh, But they didn't have expectant delight of what he could do and who, who he was. Simply put, The disciples were really dull of mind, not ready to grasp a fuller and a truer understanding of Jesus and his uniqueness. So, really, there was a twofold miracle that took place in this incident on the sea. Uh, The immediate cessation of the wind, where Jesus had authority over it, and then the immediate arrival of the boat to its destination. Now, that's recorded in the Gospel of John. It says they were willing therefore to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. But I pick it up in verse number 51, or 53, excuse me, of Mark, but I want you to notice what it says there. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesareth and moored to the shore. Now, I don't know if you picked this up, but... Bethsaida was the town they were heading to, not Gennesareth. Bethsaida was a town on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Gennesareth was a densely populated plain on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, between Tiberias and Capernaum. So, did you notice that the disciples with Jesus in the boat did not? end up at Bethsaida, which was their original destination, but ended up at Gennesareth. However, it happened is, is unsure. But what is sure is that Jesus wanted to land right where they did. That is sure. And so in this next section of Scripture is actually a summary section. Mark does that from time to time. He sums things up. And so that's what he's kind of doing here. And you'll see that in verse 53 to 56, which is only three verses, uh, there's no teaching. There is no preaching mentioned. There is no interaction with his disciples. What we do see, though, is the magnetic atmosphere that the person and presence of Jesus Christ generates. Even when the people understand Jesus in a minimalistic way and display little faith, Jesus is present amongst these people of Gennesaret for blessing. And that's all you see in this passage of Scripture. You see Jesus' magnetic power drawing people to him from all over the place and motivating the people that are there to do so, to bring the people to him. So in this part, we're moving away from the dullness of mind and of the disciples to imagine the difference that could take place when someone has a little bit of faith. So we see actually three things uh, of a heart of little faith. In verse 54, a heart of little faith can be ready to acknowledge his presence. Now, before I read verse 54... Jesus' name is known in Gennesareth even though Jesus had never been there before. The region this region of Galilee uh, that so recently had been party to rejecting him as the Messiah were still eager to accept the miracles that proved his messiahship. So when they landed at Gennesareth the people there responded to his presence in a very favorable manner. If you notice in verse 54, look what it says. And when they had come out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. So the people of Gennesareth recognized who he is. The disciples are slow of mind and hard concerning who he is, but the people of Gennesareth recognize him and are convinced that he has the power to heal. That's what they know about him. That's the knowledge they have about him. And so that little faith acknowledged who he was. I know who that person is. That is the person called Jesus Christ. That is the person who heals. That is the person who performs miracles. Right? And so with that in mind, leads us to a second thing a heart of little faith can be, uh, g- can generate, and that is an Urgency to bring the spiritually and physically sick into his presence. So if you notice what it says in verse 55, and ran about the whole country and began to carry about on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. So these runners were mobilized to bring to Jesus those who were in need of spiritual medicine, those who were in need of being healed, and their running showed that there was a sense of urgency because they believed who he was, because they believed in what he can do. So the focus is on Jesus and his great power to heal. And this is significant because this major indicator showed that the kingdom of God had come near the people, that the Messiah of the kingdom was present right there with them. And maybe the most pointed passage of Scripture that reminds us of this truth is found in, and I'd like you to turn there, turn back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, because what Jesus is doing is actually carrying out what the prophet Isaiah said he would do when he came. John the Baptist was the forerunner, laying the groundwork, and Jesus was going to come with a mission to accomplish something. And if you notice in Matthew chapter eight, verse sixteen, it says this: "It says, and when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits, the spirits with the word, and healed all who were ill." In verse seventeen, in order that what was spoken through the prophet, Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So this is exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do. So that's what he does there. And he does it before the disciples. He does it before these people at Gennesaret. He does it in a place that they weren't originally going, but this was a densely populated place and there were many, many people there. And so Jesus came there, and as he came there, the people of that the the towns there went everywhere, running to get the people to bring them to where Jesus was. That's what the scriptures say. So that means a little faith can have an urgency which knows enough to bring people to Jesus because they know in Jesus something could take place. They know in Jesus, someone would be healed because the kingdom had come near them. And this is what happened when the king of the kingdom is near them. No disease can stand in his way. No demon can go hidden but must be uncovered. Uh, no, there's, the possibilities are endless when it comes to the miracles of Jesus Christ. And he comes into their presence. And there's a third thing that we see in our text, and that is a heart of little faith can plead to have a simple touch from Jesus. It says there in verse number 56, and wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and entreating him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it we were being cured. Now that's very interesting because it gives a sense to us where any, anyone who came to Jesus for anything were never cast from His presence. But Jesus accepted them and did what he needed to them to usually to either heal them. But it was never just about healing, remember. It was about eternal salvation. It was about entering the kingdom. It was about repentance and faith. So this little term uh, at the end of verse 56, and that they just might touch the fringe of his cloak, rings in our mind what happened in Mark chapter 5. If you remember, there it was the hemorrhaging woman that had a plan to go and touch Jesus' garment so she can be healed and then get out of there. That was her plan, but that wasn't God's plan. God's plan was way more than any physical thing to happen. God's plan was to save her. In fact, the term cured in our passage and the one used in Mark 5 actually is the word with the root to save. And it's used in an imperfect tense, meaning that it emphasized the continuing and the enduring ability for Jesus to heal and save people. It never ends. He will always be doing that. So the woman in chapter 5, verse 27, let's turn back there for a minute, and Mark, if you want to just be reminded of that, she came with a plan to touch the hem of Jesus' garment to be healed without detection and then to get out of town. She didn't realize that when you go to Jesus for help and when Jesus is present for help, You will both give to and get from him far more than you bargained for. She heard about Jesus' miracles and thought to herself that he could help her when no one else could help her. And she thought, all I want to do is touch his cloak. So this comes up again in this passage. Of course, her story probably resonated throughout that region. And so the people wanted to do the same thing. And remember, the woman was ceremonially unclean and she should not have been out in the crowd in the first place, especially reaching out to touch someone, making them ceremonially un- unclean. But she was hoping that no one would take notice of her and, and wanted to keep her situation hidden in private. So her plan was to come behind Jesus. If you notice in verse 27 of chapter 5, it says, And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. And she thought, If I just touch his garments, I will get well. Now, we know that Jesus was wearing what they call that day a shimla, which is a large square cloth used to uh to cover the out, it was like an outer robe, and at the end of the robe, at the edge of the robe, were tassels, and then one corner of the robe, they would throw over their shoulders, and the tassels would hangle uh, hang on, on the back of uh, the person's, uh, as you throw over the shoulder, they would hang back there, and so the corners were dangling, and it was the tassels that hung down behind him, that's what the woman touched. And as she touched his Garment, she immediately became well. That's what she did. She reached out, she touched the fringe of his cloak, and to her grand surprise, something happened in verse 29 of chapter 5. Immediately, the flow of blood was dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So, what had kept flowing like a spring. And no man could heal her now disappeared in a moment, dried up like it never oozed blood before. In other words, she had a subjective realization that she had been healed immediately and felt it in her body. And it is expressed in our text by the perfect tense, which, is, which really means of the verb, I have been healed. However... What she did not want to happen, happened. She didn't want to be found out. She wanted it all to be private. But she was found out. Her secret plan became public re- revelation. And this brought about uh, the attention, of course, Jesus. In verse number 30 and 32 of chapter 5, Jesus' response to her was immediately, Jesus perceiving in himself that power Proceeding from, had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and says, Who touched me? Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing on you and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. See, Jesus knew the touch of faith. He knew her ailment. He knew he actually willed her healing. And Jesus realized that power went out of him to work this miracle. It had Taken, he had taken upon himself her uncleanness and her sickness and imparted her purity and health. The woman worked her plan, but got far more than she anticipated. She came to Jesus for healing, but she went just to get a touch and run, and she wanted to say, I'm better now. I'm out of here. But simply, that's, Jesus wouldn't have it that way. So Jesus forced her to go public. Jesus requested that she identify herself, and she, it was a very frightening thing to her. And the reason why he did that is because, number one, she needed, she needed that in order to correct her theology. Uh, it was not just a touch, but it was faith in Jesus that healed her, and that she needed it in order to expose her heart to cause her to totally confess her sin. See, it was far more than physical healing that she needed. She needed spiritual healing. So what's the woman's response in verse number 33 of chapter 5 when the eyes of Jesus rested on her? It says, and he looked around to see the woman who had done this so the woman's response was fear, trembling, humility and confession for it says but the woman fearing and trembling aware of what happened to her in verse 33 the woman was frightened, trembling because what had occurred to her and even though she wanted to keep this whole event private she wanted to he, Jesus wanted to it to be made known publicly and when the eyes of Jesus rested on her she said something She did something actually normal uh, people would do when they're confronted with their holiness. It says that she came and fell before him, in verse 33, and told him the whole truth. So she told Jesus the whole truth. And her experience turned into a blessing. In spite of her shame and fear, it turned into a blessing. And she confessed, I was 12 years with this desperate condition. I spent all my money on a cure, and my condition got worse. No doctor, no physician could help me. I am ceremonially unclean, and I touched you, making you unclean. I disobeyed the law by making you unclean, but here I am, confessing to you. And to her astonishment, Jesus treats her with profound tenderness which becomes clear in Mark 5, verse 34, and he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So by calling her daughter, which is a term of endearment, it's actually welcoming welcoming her into the kingdom of God. He commends her for her faith. Your faith has made you well in verse 34. Her faith was trust and confidence in Jesus from the reports that she had been hearing about Jesus' miracles. Now, these inspired her faith to go seek out Jesus and, of course, move her to a place where she would touch his garment. However, her faith did not rest in the physical touch but in the person she did touch. So, see, it had to be focused back on Jesus. And so Jesus answered the secret, unspoken trust of her heart. Jesus did not only want to heal her physical body, but more importantly, to save her soul. So the compassion of Jesus sends her off with a blessing, go in peace, and peace is the fruit of faith, And Jesus reassures her that because of his will, she need not fear the return of her old ailment. It says, and be healed of your affliction. So Jesus would not settle for just physical healing. Spiritual spiritual salvation must be experienced also. It's always about that. So in other words, what happened in the end of Mark chapter 6 and what happened with the woman with the issue of blood is really one uh, and the same in that the results were they wanted the magnetic nature of Jesus drew people and brought people to the place where their little faith acknowledged his presence and his power their little faith brought an urgency to them in which they went and brought others to Jesus Christ for spiritual healing and physical healing, and it caused them to plead to trust Jesus and touch him for saving and healing. Now, What difference should this make in your life? Well, we ought to be like these people. We ought to do the same thing as these people did with a little bit of faith. Their faith may not not have been large and it was small, but it surely was active. And faith is always active. They put into practice what they knew about Jesus. They put into practice what they could do. And once they recognize that Jesus is God, once they recognize that Jesus is God's one and only salvation for sinners, and once a person recognizes that even now, It should prod our minds, and it should prod our hearts, and it should prod our faith to think of several things that souls are dying every day. Time is short. Opportunities are rapidly passing away. So we should spare no pains in laboring to bring people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ that they may be saved. The urgency must be there in our heart. We cannot be lethargic. We cannot be dull-minded in this area. We ought to be alert to the fact that we are God's ambassadors. We are God's evangelists. There are different approaches to evangelism. Someone coined the phrase, petition evangelism. This view of evangelism states that we are to tell them and invite them. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be declared, but the unbeliever must also be invited to receive the gift of salvation. I like when we were watching those uh, dispatches from the front that what it is Uh, and that one simple formula that one missionary have he says well what's your the the guy asked him what's your plan for uh, winning these people and he says I got a simple plan pray meet people and tell them about Jesus that's simple isn't it that is the plan we can all do that plan there's nobody beyond doing that plan Uh, we ought to be doing that plan one of the definitions of evangelism is this, communicating the good news of Jesus Christ to unbelievers with the intent of inviting them to repent of their sins, to have faith in Jesus Christ, and that is the first step in discipling and discipleship and spiritual maturity. But there's an emphasis on evangelism as the first step. The goal of evangelism is not just to have a list of converts. The goal or result of evangelism is not just conversion, but discipleship. Christ commands believers to make disciples, not converts, not just converts. So why evangelize? Well, there's actually a number of reasons that believers engage in evangelism there are secondary reasons and there are primary reasons the secondary reasons could be like number 1 the new personal experience of a believer a new convert a new convert is excited about his or her conversion experience and so they they go about and witness to their friends and to their relatives and to their coworkers And some say that that usually wears off in about 30 to 90 days. And one reason why it may wear off or they may back off from that is because they realize not everybody's accepting it and they receive persecution. So they kind of backtrack and say, wait a minute, maybe I'm not doing this the right way. All right, another secondary reason is the involvement of a training program. A church can have a training program like we used to have, Evangelical Explosion here, and many of the older Christians will... Uh, evangelize when they are trained and assigned to share the gospel the problem is once the program is over uh, the accountability usually ceases and of course uh, usually evangelism also does and then of course there's the motivation of guilt which is a, a secondary reason many evangelize because of guilt They don't want to be responsible for anyone's going to hell as a result of that person not hearing the gospel. Now, that will often motivate a person to witness to close friends and relatives, and it should. Now, those three reasons may have some validity to them, but they often lack a consistent motivation for evangelism. And the Bible offers a number of good reasons for believers to evangelize, to go out and win the laws, to go out and tell the good news of the gospel, to go out like the people of Gennesaret and bring them, to go out and say, listen, Jesus is here. The message of the gospel is here. You need to hear this. It's vital for you. The first, of course, is, is a simple one, and that's found in Matthew 28. It's found in the gospel of Mark, chapter 16 where it says in verse number 14 of Mark 16 which I'll get there one of these days it says and afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves and they were reclining at the table and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen and he said to them go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation and he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. See, that's the, that's the commandment of God. The main reason for evangelism is obedience to God's command to go. It's not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. Believers are to evangelize because God commanded them to do so. A second primary reason would be the terrible fate of man. Although it is true that the main reason for evangelism is the command of God, it is also true that the horrors of eternal punishment in the lake of fire cannot be ignored as a significant motivation for evangelism. If you remember in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and the beggar. While the rich man lived in luxury, the beggar lived in misery and poverty. The rich man had no concern about his destiny. That changed, though, dramatically when he died and went to hell, as the story goes in the Gospel of Luke. Hell is described by the Lord as a place where there is conscious torment An irreversible separation from God. It is a place to be avoided. The scriptures teach that hell will be a place in the lake of fire and that from that place there is no escape for all eternity. Eternal punishment is a reality and a very, very serious matter. It is necessary to be about the business of evangelism because people will be separated from God in a place of torment forever if they do not have the opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it in faith and repentance. So that is definitely a primary reason, the terrible fate of man. But there is a fourth reason And that's the deep need of man. And we see that in our passage of Scripture in in Mark. It shows the deep need of humanity. And the one who can meet that need is Jesus Christ. A story comes up again in the the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul received the vision of a man from Macedonia begging him to come there and help him. And the lost of the world are looking for something. They're looking for something to satisfy their deep, inward longings. People are longing for something in their heart. They're looking for something more than what they see and what they've experienced, but they don't know what they're looking for. So they try all kinds of things to fill that void. They try drugs, they try religious systems, they try all kinds of uh, methods and patterns and drugs and whatnot to fill that they're, wait- they're, they're actually desiring something and they have deep inward longings. Even though they may not be aware of it, they are waiting for someone to bring them the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they're waiting for. But who will bring it to them? Will we bring it to them? Will you tell your neighbors about Christ? Will you tell your family about Christ? Have you told your family about Christ? Or are you afraid like the disciples? Are you dull of mind and don't know what to say? Do the opportunities come up and you never take them? See, daily the world hears about the bad news of this world system and they long to hear the good news that Christians have to give. Christians are the only ones who have to give it. According to Ephesians 2, the unsaved person is separated from God, disobedient to God, living in hopeless despair and living under the burden of sin and they need the glorious, liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they need. They need a cure, and Jesus is the cure. He's the one who saves. There's one other primary reason. That's the love of Jesus Christ. See, the whole point of of Scripture is to bring us to the point where we love Jesus more and more and more and more because when we do, It will be, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, it will be the love of Christ that compels us. To what? To beg people to be saved. To beg people to hear the message that will save their soul, make them right with God, forgive them of sin, and give them the hope of glory in Christ Jesus where they'll spend eternity with him. So believers in Jesus Christ, are ambassadors sent to proclaim his message of reconciliation. You don't have to reconcile friends. You have to reconcile enemies. And anybody who, before they come to Christ, is an enemy of God, and they need to be reconciled. All sinners are enemies of God until they believe in Christ. Christ's love compels people to give witness to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when the love of Christ and the joy of salvation are experienced, the desire is for others to experience the same thing. That's what's going on in our passage. The people got a sense of who Jesus was, and they wanted other people to experience the same thing. when Jesus Christ was present. So Christ's love holds believers to the task to put pressure in their life, which produces results. That's that word, compel. It compels them. Everything is changed and different because Christ loved us savingly. And we know that that includes Christ's death in the place of all who put their faith in him Having concluded this, it says in Corinthians that one died for all, therefore all died. See, this is the great proof of his love his death in our place, his death in our stead. And then also that Christ's death fully satisfied God's justice and propitiated his wrath for all those who put their faith in him. The cross was a terrifying, bloody execution. And Jesus' crucifixion shows us that something had gone terribly wrong with the human race. But it also shows us that there is a solution. The Bible tells us about what God has done in order to reconcile sinners to himself. So friends do not need to be reconciled, but enemies do. It was God who sent Christ It was God himself who took the initiative. In other words, sin was dealt with in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, and the result, the sins of believers are washed away. The believer is reconciled to God. Sinners are forgiven, and the broken relationship between sinner and a holy God is changed forever and ever and ever. Behold, all things become new in Christ Jesus. See, and it's our job. We can place the magnetism of Jesus Christ before others. We can live in a way where we draw people's attention to why are we different? Why do we speak differently? Why do we do different things? And we can tell them, of the good news of Jesus Christ, and that through repentance of sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, people can see and enter the kingdom of God. Now, this weekend, we have an evangelism table in the mall. If you've never gone there, maybe it's time to sign up. All right, Fridays and Saturday, all day Saturday. We also have... Canal Fest this weekend where we're going to have a table out in town. You can go and man that table, volunteer for that. Uh, You can pray, you can pass out tracts, and you can tell people about Jesus. Right? That's what you can do. You can do those things. And the only way to do evangelism is dive in. If you think about it too long, you won't do it. You know enough to do what God asks you to do. There are several examples that people come up have come up with, with uh, called gospel summaries. Sometimes people don't know where to start. Uh, they don't know how to formulate what they want to say. But some people have come up with some things that are, could be helpful. For example, the the do done uh, summary, the do done summary. The do, the do part of it is all forms of religion, both formal and informal are spelt do, D-O, because they tell you, they tell us, we have to perform good works and obey moral and religious laws in order to find God, in order to achieve forgiveness, or nirvana, or peace. But you can never be sure if you've done enough. How much do you do before you get saved? And then there's the done part of it. Christianity is the done part. Right? Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E because God sent His Son to earth to live the life we should live, to die on the cross to pay the debt we should pay for wrongs we've done. Buddha said, strive without ceasing. Jesus said, it's finished. See, he's, to become a Christian is to turn from do to Done by asking God to accept you for Jesus' sake and commit yourself to live for Him. And there's also the sin-salvation summary. Sin is substituting ourselves for God, putting ourselves where only God deserves to be in charge of our lives. Salvation is God substituting himself for us, putting himself where only we deserve to be, dying on the cross. For it says in the scriptures, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So to become a Christian, first is to admit the problem that you have been substituting yourself for God, either by religion, trying to be your own savior, by obedience to moral standards, or by irreligion, trying to be your own lord, by, disobeying, be, by disobedience to moral standards. And then secondly, to accept the solution. Asking God to accept you for Jesus' sake. And know that you are loved and accepted because of his record, not your record. So, see, a little faith can accomplish much with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, the bottom line is that you are the magnets that lift Jesus up so men and women could be drawn unto him, you are the mouthpieces to go into the world and preach the gospel. You are the evangelist to go and communicate to those who have never heard the truth of the message of salvation. You are the one. There's no wiggle room out of this. We need to speak. We need to talk for the Lord. We, we cannot be silent. So in that respect, we need to be a lot like these people of Gennesaret. They ran to get the people to Jesus. They had an urgency in their heart about him and his message and they didn't let up. And what's interesting is that everyone who was brought to Jesus was healed. Everyone. That's an amazing statement. Everyone that we pray for, everyone that we uh, bring before Jesus, Jesus will save those who come to him with, in repentance and faith. He's not going to Cast them out. He's going to receive them. You know? And so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? See, magnetism is what gives magnets their ability to attract objects made of iron or steel. A magnet creates around itself a region of space with special properties. And, of course, that region of space is called the magnetic field. You know what the church is? The church is the magnetic field. We are to not repel them, but we are to attract them to Jesus Christ. So in this scripture, we definitely see the magnetism of Jesus Christ. And when we recognize that, we will want to bring people to Jesus. And we will learn how to do it if we don't know yet. That's what we'll do. And all God's people said what? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. I pray, Lord, today that you would take these simple texts and, Lord, that you would burn them into our heart and give us a sense of urgency to, Lord, not be quiet about what we know about the gospel, not be quiet about our salvation. Not be quiet about our testimony. I pray, Lord, that when the opportunity arises, you will allow us to speak. You will allow us to be those magnets that draw people to Christ that we can share the gospel with. Because we know the Lord Jesus Christ is really the magnet that draws people. The Father draws people to Christ as he's lifted up, as he's spoken about, as he's proclaimed. And I pray, Lord, enable us to do that. Give us this urgency in our heart because, Lord, of it's your command because, Lord, of the terrible fate of man, because of the deep need of humanity, because of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please constrain, constrain us, compel our hearts to be ambassadors and bring the gospel and speak the gospel to people. And, Lord, allow us to see fruit. Allow us to see people come and believe, come and be baptized, come and be discipled, come and grow in the Lord, and come and grow to a point where we, we see them doing the same thing that we've done and we understood. I pray that you would do that. Multiply us for your sake, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.